0: Welcome to Medical Minefield, where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Barney Kalman, the health editor at The Mail on Sunday, and with me today is The Mail on Sunday's health reporter, Ethan Ennals. Hello. This week, we're talking about COVID scare stories, and does frightening the hell out of people encourage them to get the jab? As always, we'd love to know what you think, so get in touch with us using the hashtag MedicalMinefield on Twitter. But first, let's have a listen to this.
1: I've got a very high temperature. This makes some pain, some shivers. Cold in my extremities. It feels exactly like a cold, maybe a little bit worse. Uh, When I stand up, I feel like I'm going to fall over. I hope I've got it. I hope it is COVID, because I'd rather have the antibodies in my blood than take the jabs. So this is an update on... The vlog that I made yesterday, the symptoms that I had at half 11 had massively ramped up. I, I, I don't know how long, probably about six hours I spent in a fetal position. Every part of my body was racked with a pain. If these are things that we have to suffer, it's part of living. You have to trust your immune system. And if the alternative is that we live in fear, that we create a bogeyman out of something that hopefully I'm showing isn't anything to be afraid of for 99.9% of us, we've got to deal with that. We've got to make the government aware that that is how we feel. People get flu, people get colds, people endure it and then get on with their lives. That's the way it's always been. COVID-19, in my view, and from what I've experienced so far, is nothing different, nothing different. But the potential dangers from taking the experimental jab, for me, are not worth that risk. I'd rather take my chances.
0: Famous last words, or perhaps it would be more sensitive to say defiant last words of solicitor Leslie Lawrenson, who was found dead in his bed, having succumbed to Covid not long after making that recording in June. The vlogs that he was recording came to light about a month later and it turned into a big news story. He'd presumably aimed to show viewers that, as he said, COVID was nothing to be afraid of for 99.9% of people. Unfortunately, he paid for that misconception with his life. It's become something of a genre of story about anti-vaxxers, I suppose, who've said no to the jab and then subsequently caught COVID and died. You know, dozens of stories are out there now, all telling a a similar tale. What do you think about them, Ethan?
2: I mean, I've heard quite a few of them now. I find that one especially haunting, not least because he sounds smart. He sounds like a very normal, intelligent man, but a man nonetheless really stuck in his views is tragic especially considering the impact it also had on his family.
0: Yes, because he'd persuaded his wife not to have the jab. She was found clinging to life. He was dead upstairs in bed. You know, obviously, uh, the the family were, were devastated. I suppose my interest is whether or not these stories are doing any good. Do they encourage people to have the vaccine? Or are they having the opposite effect? And is there any truth in what they say? Are healthy fit people better off having the virus and building natural immunity than having the vaccine obviously i feel this is a a misconception but i've been very vocal that i'm a big fan of vaccination you know i think this is something that you should probably put to an expert
2: yes indeed joining us now is dr stephen griffin a virologist at the university of leeds dr griffin thank you so much for joining us thanks for inviting me Something we often hear from people who are against the COVID vaccine is that the virus is like the flu in that it's something we can just get over. Is there any scientific evidence for that?
3: Well, I think first of all, you shouldn't underestimate influenza. Um, <laughs> the reason that we have fewer problems with the seasonal influenza is because many of us have got prior experience of that infection. This is a novel virus. we We don't have prior experience of these infections. The vaccine is a much, much safer alternative than experiencing natural infection. Natural infection carries with it a great risk. And that's the entire principle of developing vaccines in the first place, because whilst percentage-wise, people may not experience a severe infection all the time with this virus, many, many people do. It's killed well over 4 million people worldwide. It's not something to trivialize.
2: But if you're fit and you're healthy and, you know, you take your vitamins and you have cold showers in the morning and you're pretty sure you've got a robust immune system, do you really Mm. need a vaccine?
3: Well, I'm afraid your immune system isn't a muscle. You can't train it up. You know, as long as you're not deficient in your diet or, or possibly taking medications or other underlying health conditions or perhaps genetic problems with your immune system, there's absolutely no reason why anyone's immune system is different to one another in terms of its capability to deal with a a given infection. We all have a variable response to infections. It's a precision weapon, your immune system. It's, It's defined by our genetics and how we respond to both vaccines and infections is determined by our genetics. So we all make a slightly different response. Some of us do really, really well and barely notice that we're unwell. Most of us make a good response. And remember, this is a response. You have to catch up with that virus infection most of us do okay but many of us don't and this is why we need to achieve this second more robust memory response in order to become what we call immune which again is not 100 percent and a vaccine is a much much safer way of doing that i'm afraid that just saying that because you do exercise and eat healthily that's not going to guarantee that you'll make the right response against this virus
2: do you yourself ever come into contact with people who are vaccine hesitant and uh when you do what do you tell them
3: uh, well, actually, yes, I I, I do um, webinars to try and address people in the care sector who are obviously being mandated to to have their vaccinations as part of their new requirements for their employment. And this is a very difficult situation. And, you know, I'd, I'd much rather that there wasn't a need to mandate vaccinations in the first place and people understood what uh, an advantage this was. I mean, Vaccines, in my view, alongside sanitation, the greatest healthcare advance that we that we've made. You know, I guess you could add some various drugs to that as well, but you know that they're an amazing saviour of of people's lives and humanity, and they're a much much safer way of creating what we would call a protective population immunity from a virus or any other type of infection for that matter. And you just can't do this by natural infection alone. It's it's a myth. To say that if you're young and fit and healthy, that you're specifically boosting your immune system, I'm afraid. A vaccine programs the same natural response that you would make to an infection, but does it in a much safer fashion. So it's, it's, it's a no brainer, really. I'm afraid everyone needs a vaccine. You really shouldn't be experiencing natural infections, especially with a virus like this.
2: So when you uh, put these arguments to people who are vaccine hesitant, do you find they work? Mm. And and do you believe that we can eventually get everyone around to the vaccine or is there always going to be some who hold out?
3: Well, I think there are always going to be extreme views. I think the most sympathy I have for people are people who are obviously anxious, stressed, worried. You know, we've we've been through a pandemic for nearly two years now. It's, It's a stressful time it's new. People don't understand about how the vaccines have been developed. Sometimes there's, you see lots of really worrying things on social media about how these vaccines are experimental, about how they're so new and they've been rushed through. We don't understand long-term effects. These vaccines have had some of the most robust and vigorous clinical trials used to characterize them that have ever been done. The sheer number of people that have had those vaccines and are now experiencing vaccines due to clinical practice, you know, billions of people have had these jabs. We know so much more about them than we do for many medications. So the notion that they're experimental and or unsafe really isn't right. And, and you know, all of these things are about a balance of risk. Of course, there are side effects from vaccines. Of course, there are sometimes very rare adverse reactions. But now, you know, now we've only understood that because we've used them so broadly And effectively, you you just need to look at the disconnect between infections now and the incidence of severe disease, which has been tremendously weakened, unfortunately not broken. And vaccines do two things. They protect the individual, but they also protect the community because the fewer people that are susceptible to that virus means that the more vulnerable people in society are less likely to experience an infection.
0: Stephen, you must have seen stories that have been in the press Mm. about people who are anti-vax, I guess, um, who have chosen not to have the vaccine and then unfortunately paid for that
3: with their lives. What do you
0: think of those stories? What do you think when you read those stories?
3: Well, I I just think it's a a dreadful shame. You know, I I think it's terrible. I mean, there's different things going on here, isn't there? Because, you know, people are... Are likely to succumb, much more likely to succumb to an infection if they haven't had their vaccine. I guess there's a difference between actually pushing that that narrative on other people compared with just making a personal choice. But I don't think that we should get into a sort of blame game here. You know, it, it, the same sorts of arguments happen around smoking and obesity and all that sort of thing. I think healthcare needs to be given at the point of care and to everyone equally. I don't think we should start berating people for their choices, but... It is encouraging that, that some of them do change their views and, and, and regret not having the do, vaccine. But I think it's, it's, it's a shame that some people stick to it till the end, really. I think mm. it's crazy.
0: Do you think stories like these might encourage more people to have the vaccine?
3: Well, I think the problem with, with individual anecdotal stories is that it doesn't give you a view of the population as a whole. And and we know now that, you know, with the Delta variant, the game has changed. We're, we're experiencing huge levels of infection around this country. And that unfortunately is having a knock-on effect of us seeing more younger people hospitalized, more children hospitalized, and a greater incidence of long COVID. And of course, the, the clinically vulnerable are, are put at risk again. So yes, I hope everyone buys into the vaccination, but at the same time, I think we need to use those vaccines in the right way and and get them into enough people so that eventually we can start moving past this and achieve a much safer way of living and and get back to normal. Dr Griffin, thank you so much for your time and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Larry.
0: Well, I feel like Stephen's views chimed perhaps with yours that he had a lot of sympathy for people that had fallen for these stories that somehow you could rev up your immune system or being fit and healthy was a kind of protection that means you don't need to have a a COVID vaccine.
2: I think that's entirely true. I, I think it's dreadful that these people have fallen into these kind of gaps of misinformation and obviously you can't you know, you can't you don't know what's gonna to happen to your immune system, but you know, you speak to any public health expert and they'll tell you that the blame game isn't the way forward.
0: It's interesting. I've reported a lot on the statin story from the perspective that people that publicly say that statins, the heart drug that lowers cholesterol and has been proven in huge numbers of studies to prevent heart attacks, prevent strokes. You know, if you're at risk of having a heart attack or stroke, taking statins is a no-brainer. However, there's a huge misinformation industry almost that's grown up around statins, persuading people that somehow you can diet your way out of the problem of heart attacks. And of course, ultimately, people do pay for this with their lives. And I have a huge amount of sympathy for that. But, you know, perhaps I shouldn't admit it. But I find when I read stories like the one about Leslie and that my sympathy does dry up somewhat. I think the difference with anti-vax is that it's got an impact on the wider
2: community. Yeah. If you don't take statins, that's only affecting you. But if you don't take the vaccine, that affects people around you.
0: You know, and this guy essentially almost... I mean, he persuaded his wife not to have the vaccine and she almost died too. And, you know, I mean, uh, he was broadcasting on on Facebook, as we've said. You know, he intended his video to persuade people that they didn't need to have the jab. That was why he was doing the video. I just find my sympathies do dry up somewhat.
2: I, I see where you're coming from. I think making a vlog and also telling your wife not to get the vaccine is tantamount to a crime because you're putting others at risk. But, you know, people have these views and they become entrenched in them. And the the harder you try to shake them, the kind of deeper into the hole they'll go. So, Mm. you know, it it takes some kind of finesse to get them out of there.
0: Absolutely. And another thing that I've written a fair bit about is public health messaging and what encourages people to take up healthful behaviours and what disencourages them. I specifically wrote about the HIV campaign and the research that showed that the terrifying adverts of Tombstones and clanging and volcanoes and all kinds of doom messaging—they were very memorable, but they actually scared a lot of people and and stopped a lot of people from seeking help and getting HIV tests when in fact they should have been. And it was only when they started finding ways to get out there in the community and encourage people to to have a test and and to get medicated and and such like they really began to to make inroads in tackling the problem. And this is something that I want to talk to our next guest about. We've got. Professor Robert Digwall on the line, expert in medical sociology at Nottingham Trent University. Thanks for finding some time to be with us, Professor Dingwall. We've spoken in the past about public health messaging, what works, what doesn't. In this podcast, we're looking at the, uh, the rise or the proliferation of these stories about anti-vaxxers who have said no to the jab and then gone on to get COVID and then died. I guess they're, they're scare stories. Have you seen any of these and, and what do you think about them? Do you think they in- are going to encourage people to
4: have a jab? Well, of course I've seen a few of them Barney. It's um I mean they're part of a very long tradition. I mean they kind of go back to the middle ages and all the stories about you know, people who failed to convert to Christianity and repented at the last moment. Um so there's a there's a very familiar frame that uh, these stories are cast in. And I, I'm not frankly sure that they're any more effective today in um promoting conversions to the cause of vaccination than they were in promoting conversion to the cause of Christianity uh, several hundred years ago.
0: There are two types of people who say no to the vaccine, aren't there? There's people who are worried, nervous, have questions, hesitant, don't get around to it for various different reasons. And then there's people who have these very entrenched beliefs that there is a conspiracy that there's some kind of microchip or that somehow having natural immunity or f- being fit is some kind of protection. They d- they don't want to have any vaccine or, or especially this one. Is there a difference in how you might persuade one of these groups to have a jab?
4: Well, I think we've got to be absolutely careful to make a distinction between the, the sort of out-and-out refusenik that you describe in the second category, who are people who it's really quite difficult to shift from their opinions, um, and the the mass of people who don't quite get round to it. I think the there's certainly research by uh, Professor Jennifer Reich at the um, University of Denver in the States about the, the complexity of vaccine hesitancy. Sometimes it's people who genuinely have other priorities in their life and don't quite get round to it. Sometimes it's people who are a bit cut off from the mainstream society. In the UK, for example, I know that some of the low uptake among um, some minority ethnic groups is because they're primarily getting their information about the vaccines from the sort of home country, wherever that is, uh, and not from mainstream UK media. So they're they're consulting sources that are a good deal more suspicious about uh, the kind of medicine that's being offered. And we we really need to have different solutions for each of those groups. And uh, I think it's not always helpful to sort of lump them all together as this is a problem of vaccine hesitancy, uh, so much as here is a bunch of problems, very few of which will be solved by the sort of fear-based messaging of the you know, the kind of deathbed conversion stories.
0: Could there be a fear that, you know, you'd have someone who's on the fence would read one of these stories and would get so turned off by them that they would definitely not get the vaccine, that it would have the opposite effect?
4: Well, it's one of those areas that sort of falls between sociology and psychology. And from, you know, from what I understand of the psychology side of the fence, fear-based messaging is generally not very effective. Uh, for precisely that reason, people look at these stories and they essentially get their turn off and they stop reading them and the The media that are promoting them may think that they're doing a public service, but they probably aren't um in, in the sense that people who are afraid and people who are anxious you know they don't easily have their mind changed and they're they're more likely to start ignoring the message than responding to it.
0: We've talked in the past about research that was done into HIV messaging and there were adverts in the 80s that were very scary with tombstones and clanging metal and exploding volcanoes and messages like everyone can get it. And And I mean, these were actually later looked at as a negative thing for many people that they alienated groups of people that, that in fact... You know you would have wanted to reach with a public health message is that right
4: yes i mean that's the you know, it's the same sort of thing that i was, was just talking about. I mean what's interesting for those of <clears throat> those listeners who remember those adverts and they're still easily available on youtube. I mean the Department of Health you know ran one campaign, and the the advertising agency that devised them came back with proposals for another campaign of even scarier. <laughs> Uh, videos um, or well, television adverts, as they would have been then, and the, the chief medical officer at the time, um, Donald Acheson, absolutely vetoed the idea that the department would do would endorse any further fear-based messaging. Uh, and he said, "It's not effective and it's not ethical. It's this is not what public health is about. Public health is about working in partnership with people." It, you know, it's about persuasion and encouragement. It's not about scaring people. And I, I think that somewhere along the line, we've slightly lost track of those insights in the um, the, the approach that some leading figures in public health have been taking in the uh, in the COVID pandemic.
2: Professor, what message do you think we should be sending out to these people instead?
4: The message that we should be sending out is is we're listening to you. You know, it's the beginning of all effective teaching. It's starting out by understanding where the people you're trying to educate, the people you're trying to persuade, where are they coming from? You know, what matters to them? How are they thinking about this problem? It's not going out and saying, well, you know, you're all a bit stupid or you're all a bit idle or you're all a bit backward and we're going to tell you what's what. It's starting from saying, well, what do you know? What is it that we would have to say to persuade you to, uh, to our point of view? And the, the kind of do this or else messaging that we've, we, we've seen, frankly, if anything, it tends to promote resistance.
0: I think the thing about vaccines that is so divisive is that there is a, a wider impact on other people. There's a community element to it. So some people feel they're doing their bit for the community and then they feel that people who aren't being vaccinated are doing the opposite. They're being selfish. How could we go about bridging that gap?
4: Well, I think what we've never really communicated adequately is that the vaccines are primarily about protecting the vaccinated person. They mitigate the the severity of the infection in the people who have been vaccinated. Whether another person that you're close to in a a shop or on a train or whatever has been vaccinated or not is is not really a big deal. You know, there are some benefits from indirect protection. You know, if a lot of people are vaccinated, it will considerably reduce the rate of transmission within the community. But it, it... fundamentally the benefit of the vaccine is to the vaccinated person rather than to the community
0: well it's definitely a complex issue and one that i imagine is going to keep evolving professor dingwall thank you very much for finding some time to talk to us
1: hi Sorry to interrupt your listening, but there's another great podcast from the Mail on Sunday you might want to try. Liz Jones's Diary, the podcast, offering a weekly look into the life of Britain's most unfiltered columnist. That's me. Find us at mailplus.co.uk.
2: Well, there you go. Scare stories clearly don't work.
0: I thought he had some good points. I'm not sure if I agree totally with everything. He said, I think that, yes, vaccines protect us. But also, you know, there has to be an element that people feel that they are safe to start going about their daily lives. And there are lots of people out there in certain areas who are not getting vaccinated and feel that they don't have to. You know, that makes other people feel they can't access those places like a cinema or a gym. You know, I'm thinking about my mum, for instance, who's 75 and has done everything that she can to avoid getting COVID. You know, she's not an unrealistic person, but she just doesn't want to get it. She's been vaccinated. She knows a bunch of other people who've been vaccinated, who've caught COVID and been very ill with it. Uh, They're all her age, you know you are still rolling the dice somewhat. So, you know, it's not all about the individual.
2: I guess it's just finding the best way to get that message there, whether it is the carrot or the stick. And something I wanted to quickly flag up was the family of Leslie Lawrenson, who, after his tragic death, came out and, you know, encouraged everyone to get the vaccine, then had this horrible trolling campaign waged against them because anti-vaxxers read these stories and they don't trust them. They see them as, you know, as government conspiracies and they were, you know, targeted online and called killers and Nazis. And, you know, there is a proportion of the population who does not react well to these stories and will never believe them. So we need to find a better way to do it than constantly splashing these stories about you know people who realise too late their mistake.
0: Do you think I always mispronounce this word? But do you think that there is a sense of sh- Schadenfreude? Schaden sh- Schaden <laughs> Schadenfreude Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude? It's the it's the satisfaction in other people's misfortune if they've done something silly. I suppose.
2: I think so. I th- I think also we've had it kind of wired into us now that the vaccine is something we all need to go out and get and a lot of people are, are you know take that responsibility quite seriously and and they see others who don't take it so seriously and and then come to kind of experience the consequences and perhaps there is an element of people being like well you know maybe you should have done what we all did and do the sensible thing but you know not everyone lives in the same information bubble as uh, professor Dingwall pointed out there are many in minority communities who don't get their information from the same sources we do so it's important to remember that you know our morality and our understanding of vaccines is so widely different to someone we pass in the street and i think we need to kind of take that into account
0: well i cannot argue with that i have to say that is all we've got time for You'll find all the latest health news in this weekend's The Mail on Sunday and visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces, and more. You can also follow us on Twitter by searching at MailPlus.
2: We'll be back with another topic on Medical Minefield next week. See you then.
1: Goodbye.